Hey, it's Kathy. I'm just hopping in real quick to tell you that the doors are closing to the Abundance Method program today. That's right. May 16th, four o'clock Pacific time, we close the doors to this program. And I'm so excited to watch you change your life. I'm so excited to see what happens when you tap into the energy that is within you and you start to attract so much into your life and there's incredible synchronicity and you start to perceive what was always here in plain sight and that which was hidden becomes revealed. If you want to join us, you can go to kathyheller.com slash join. And remember, those of you who sign up for the Platinum, you get the retreat included. It's going to be an incredible retreat. It's a three-day experience. You can choose between July or October and the July is definitely filling up. So come on in and join us. Again, the doors close at four o'clock Pacific today. You can sign up at kathyheller.com slash join. I cannot wait to spend 12 weeks with you and watch you become a master at manifesting the most gorgeous experiences and opportunities and abundance into your life. Thanks to Territory Foods for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of sustainably sourced, nutritionally dense, ready-to-eat meals. To save $75 across your first three orders and get free shipping, go to territoryfoods.com and use the promo code DREAMJOB. Also, thanks to Amazon Music. Amazon Music is a streaming platform for both music and podcasts. To try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days, go to amazon.com slash dreamjob30. And thanks to the fun and challenging June's Journey game. In the hidden object murder mystery game, June's Journey, you're going to awaken your inner sleuth and step right into a thrilling adventure set in the heart of the roaring 20s. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So we have such a juicy, interesting episode for you today. Malcolm Gladwell is back with his friend, Bruce Headlam, who is awesome. And we are talking about this incredible book that they just created all about Paul Simon. It's a whole experience. I can't wait to dive in and tell you all about that. Before we do, I just want to let you know that I'm doing a little bit of holiday gift giving for you guys. And there is a giveaway on my Instagram feed at kathy.heller. I'm giving away a pair of Zadig and Voltaire sneakers. They're so, so cute. And it's so easy to enter the giveaway. Head over to my Instagram and you can look at the post that I did yesterday. You will find it and you'll find out how to enter. It's so, so simple. All you're basically doing is resharing one of my posts and you'll be entered in. All right. Now, I want to talk about what we're doing today. So as I said, Malcolm Gladwell is here again and Bruce Headlam. He, if you don't know Malcolm Gladwell, he's a best-selling author of books like Outliers, Blink, The Tipping Point, Talking to Strangers, David and Goliath. He's also the president and co-founder of Pushkin Industries and the host of the popular podcast Revisionist History. We had such a great episode with him last year, which you can definitely check out if you haven't heard it. This time, he's here with his very good lifelong friend, Bruce Headlam, who is the co-creator and co-host of the Broken Record podcast. He's also an editor at the New York Times, and he ran some huge teams over there and directed coverage that ended up winning two Pulitzer Prizes. So Malcolm and Bruce went on this epic journey and spent a tremendous amount of time with one of the best songwriters, Paul Simon. 
And together they created a beautiful audio biography called Miracle and Wonder, Conversations with Paul Simon. It just came out last month. It's a collaborative audio project of 30 hours recorded in nine sessions, spanning on location from the mountains of Hawaii to Simon's own backyard. It features never before heard live studio versions and original recordings of his most beloved songs, including The Boxer, Sound of Silence, and Graceland. You'll hear Paul Simon reflect on his music, his childhood, and working with Art Garfunkel. Plus, it features cameos from Sting, Herbie Hancock, Renee Fleming, Roseanne Cash, Aaron Lindsay, and Jeff Tweedy sharing what makes particular songs so special to them. I think it's so incredible that they created this, not just because Paul Simon is such a unique and one in a zillion human being, but it's really taking audio and biographies and just putting this in a whole new format you definitely want to go take a listen and we will have links in the show notes where you can find it. It was so cool learning about Paul Simon through Malcolm and Bruce. And I'm so honored that they're here today to share all of that with you. So without further ado, please welcome the remarkable Malcolm Gladwell and the awesome Bruce Headlam. Hi, I'm so glad both of you are here. Malcolm Gladwell and Bruce Headlam. Thank you well, for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So this is really, really cool. You guys have been doing such incredible stuff separately, but you've come together around one fascinating topic, Mr. Paul Simon. Can you tell us why? Why did you choose Paul Simon? Well, we at Pushkin, we've been very interested in doing these immersive audiobooks, these audiobooks that are really make use of audio as opposed to someone sitting in a closet and reading. Right. Um, and we thought a musician would be a natural you know, because you want to hear a musician. So then the question was, which musician? And mm. so I went out to L.A. and I was I met with uh, Jody Gerson, who runs Universal. And I said, which musician? And she said, Paul Simon, of course. <laughs> and which I was like, that sounds amazing because I happen to be, and I know Bruce is as well, Paul Simon fans of longstanding. So it was Jody Gerson's idea. And the idea, I think, was that was there somebody who had a career worth talking about for hours and hours and hours, who was a good talker, who had things to say, and who had appeal to a broad stretch of the public. And Paul checks all those boxes. That is so cool. I can't wait to dive in a little bit more to what you've learned in this process. Bruce, since you haven't been on this podcast before, I want right. to just intro you a little bit. You've been working in the music world a long time. You have a phenomenal podcast of your own, Broken Record. So why did you come to this? You know so much about so many musicians. So for you, why was this so exciting and captivating? It goes back to a conversation Malcolm and I had in 2015 uh, when we would get together over a beer and, you know, we would always like sort of fix journalistic problems, you know, what would you do if you ran this magazine? What would you do here? What would you do there? And this is, was sort of our conversation for years and years. And Malcolm was always very interested in audio, mainly, I think, because he drove a lot and he would get bored <laughs> driving. He had to do, you know, something while he was waiting for, uh, you know, his next speeding ticket. And <laughs> he got very interested in this idea of a more interactive sort of audio experience. I had just, I'd been at somebody's cabin and there's nothing to read. And I picked up an autobiography of a very famous musician and it was terrible. It was so boring. It was all about rehab and all those stuff and all those friends had nothing to do with music. And I remember at the time saying, we should do music. 
I'm sure Malcolm had already thought of that, but that's why I always thought this would be great. Uh, and then lo and behold, I guess six or seven years later, whatever it was, Malcolm said, hey, Paul Simon may want to do this. What do you think? And I think as we explained in the book, we had a very early experience with Paul Simon, which is that Malcolm's mother borrowed Bridge Over Troubled Water from the Elmira Public Library, which is a little town where we lived. And I remember listening to it at Malcolm's house when we were probably seven, I'm guessing. Uh, and it made a big impression on me. So it was a thrill. Oh, my God. Okay. First of all, I know a little bit about both of you to the extent that you've both done so many incredible things in the world. But I just learned that you've known each other since you're seven years old. Six. Six. That is awesome and adorable. And you're both so intimidating. And there's something mm. so human about the fact that you were once six years old and knew each other before you were such successful you know, mm -hmm. mega stars. I love that. Did you have an inkling that you would both wind up being who you are today? Did you know that then? Did you see that in each other? I saw always a lot in Malcolm. He always looked at things differently. Um, he had a, a very analytical mind. His father's a mathematician. Um, I didn't know we'd end up working together below these many years later. If we live to be 110, we may work together again. <laughs> uh, but Malcolm became a journalist before I did. I was trying to be a filmmaker. Uh, this was up in Canada. And I needed to pay to get the film stock developed, which was very expensive. And Malcolm said, oh, you should try writing for this magazine. And that's how I became a journalist. So he is the pathbreaker here. That's awesome. Bruce was what? always, he was the funniest person I'd ever met. And that was, and he was also, the Headlums were far more culturally sophisticated than the Gladwells. Um, the Headlums had cable TV and watched PBS. And <laughs> this was just to me, to my mind. And they, you know, played in classical orchestras and they represented all that was cosmopolitan in our little farming town in Southwestern Ontario. <laughs> yeah. So, we represented uh, all that was cosmopolitan in our little farming town. <laughs> the Headlums occupied this kind of privileged cultural space in our town. So Bruce was the kind of uh, my entry point to a lot of this stuff. I just love this. And I love for listeners at home right now or wherever you are listening to just think of this moment that these two adorable kids, I'm just going to take the liberty to say you were adorable because I imagine you were, that you were listening to this bridge over troubled water and then cut to the two of you are in a position where you have so much gravitas and you are spending this time with Paul Simon doing a deep dive on his life's work. Mm -hmm. Like that is incredible. And it just shows you what happens when there is a genuine curiosity in a person and a goodness and the willingness to just march forward very clearly on a journey, which you both have. So Malcolm, I want to ask you, since you have been so curious for so long about so many things and you know a little bit about history and you host revisionist history. Is there something you learned about Paul Simon that came as a surprise to you in his history? Yeah, I guess I hadn't, I knew vaguely from listening to him for years and years and years and years and years, I was aware of his extraordinary longevity as a artist, which is really the thing that attracted us to 
one of the things that attracted us to him was that Paul Simon was a singer who has been musically relevant in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts. It's incredible. And you arguably argue that he still is. What I learned a little bit was, and what we tried to uncover in the book is why. And it was this really just interesting uh, study in how somebody can remain creatively fertile for 70 years, 75 years. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like his peers, you know, stopped writing songs in their 20s, many of them. And, you know, he's still going strong in his, his 70s. So that was, I think, what I kind of, what we both got insight into was what makes him tick a little bit. Yeah, you're right. That's like a phenomenon because you can think about artists and, you know, this hit and that single and to to think that it's just like this nonstop running water of like inspiration and quality music is is really unique. What was one of the most memorable things that you learned about him that did inspire him, you know, on this journey? I wouldn't say it inspired him. It certainly drove him. I feel even a little embarrassed saying it, but it is in the audiobook, which is that, you know, he and Art Garfunkel met when they were very, very young. And Art Garfunkel was like this star kid in Queens. He sang all, he sang all the music at his own bar mitzvah. He, you yeah. know, he was the one with the great voice. And at one point, Paul's mother said to him, you know, you've got a nice voice, Paul, but Artie, Artie has a fine voice. Mm. And he said this probably three times he told us that story. Uh, and it still kind of gets to him. And I, I think it's one reason after they broke up, he so completely reinvented himself and reinvented how he wrote music. And then he took this really starting before Graceland, but he took this whole dive into rhythmic music and he sings in a very, very particular way now that's very different than than how he sang with Art Garfunkel. And I, yeah, I, that to me is fascinating. It is. And he just didn't pull the covers up over his head, which would have been my inclination. And he, it just sort of drove him to do different things. And I, and I think a little bit of that hurt still drives him, which is, I'm not recommending that for a, for a long career that you should, you should uh, dredge up things you found insulting that your mother told you, but it's one of the things that kind of keeps him going. Yeah. We had Tim Grover here, who was Michael Jordan's trainer. And he said that even in his, like, you know, the, his peak was so long, but in those moments he would go by himself into the locker room and sort of remind himself of things that were said to him in his days in North Carolina um, so that he had fight in him for the game. Mm -hmm. Like he'd have to remember the rejection, remember to push up against something. And I love that as a lesson for people listening, that there's a gift in that somebody mm -hmm. tells you something that looks like it's a stop sign and you, you actually use that to fuel you. It's like that resistance actually is what builds the muscle. Yeah. He, uh, Michael Jordan mentioned every one of those in his hall of fame speech. If you've ever heard that, <laughs> like this <laughs> catalog of slights. And at some point I want to say, man, can't you put it away? But I guess not. Yeah. So let's take a turn here for a second because everyone who listens to this podcast, we've been doing the show for just, just about five years and we just hit 25 million downloads. And I think the reason being is because this topic, don't keep your day job, is really about people who have a creative passion and they want to be able to go do that thing. And you both have been really 
especially in this last season, but for many years, like looking at creative people, but also creating incredible content. What can you share with us that you recognize that that makes something resonate when you want to create something that is noticed that people stop and and appreciate? Is there any through line in the work you see in Paul Simon and the work you've seen in other people in your own work from podcasts to books? Like what's one of the inherent pieces or qualities that makes something resonate with an audience? Well, he, you know, Paul talks a lot about trial and error and experimentation and everyone claims that they experiment. They like to experiment, but few people actually do. And I feel like he's someone who genuinely believes in um, the importance of that kind of risk-taking and is strong enough and courageous enough to handle the idea that he might fail. You know, he, he has failed. He did that Broadway play, The Cape Man, poured his heart and soul into it. And it was a disappointment. The critics, you know, sort of turned, and the audience a little bit turned their back on it. I think that really, really, really stung him. And when he would talk about it, he would, it was clear that it really left a mark. But I feel like he learned from that and goes back and tries something else. You know, or if you look at Graceland, arguably his, his creative high watermark, what does he do after Graceland? He goes and he goes to a different part of the world, Brazil, and starts all over again with another experiment with a tradition outside of his own. So like the, the amount of times he's willing to risk his legacy, you know, to try to do something on Broadway when he's not a playwright, to do something in South Africa and then Brazil. I mean, that, it's kind of, that's the admirable thing. And I think he understands that connecting with an audience on a consistent basis requires taking risks. Just keep trying things until you find something that connects. And sometimes it doesn't work with Cape Man. Sometimes it really does work with Graceland. Mm, I love that answer. I've, I've often heard people say that it really isn't so much of a idea problem as it's a courage problem. You know, the courage to show up for those ideas because people want to know, they want to know it's a sure bet before they go ahead and try anything. And you're right. That is very admirable because he has been so bold in his choices over and over and over again. Do you have a different answer to that, Bruce? Uh, Well, I completely agree with what Malcolm said. I mean, I guess it's the difference between persistence doing the same thing and tenacity, which is coming at it from a different angle. And he always comes at it from a different angle. I think the other thing he had, uh, and this sort of argues against the lonely uh, genius thesis, is he found people who wanted to experiment as much as he did. And that was crucial. You know, I would say one of the great joys of this project, I would say one of the great joys of knowing Malcolm, is Malcolm can say, you know, we could do an audiobook about Paul Simon. That was kind of the end of the conversation until we actually recorded things. Because I think we both had a feeling for what that would be. And I felt complete. I, I just had this, I, he knows what it's going to be. I know what it's going to feel like, even though we hadn't done any work yet. Um, I had that assurance that Malcolm wanted to do something different and that we experiment the same. We had many disagreements over different parts of it. But that was one of the great things about this. And that's something I didn't always have when I worked at the New York Times. There were a lot of experiments, you know, I wanted to try and some of them I got done, but 
by the time you explain them five times to people, you just, you kind of give up. Like you just need that one other person right. to go, oh, I get it. I get it. After the first sentence, you know, if you've got to give them a paragraph, it's no good. If you give them one sentence, they go, oh yeah, go do that. And he had that, I mean, I interviewed a couple, uh, Roy Halley, who's his engineer. And there's one episode that's sort of built around Roy Halley, who met Paul Simon when he uh, was first auditioning for the record label. And Roy Halley was a guy who did classical music. And he just saw in Paul, this guy just wants to do different things. And to me, being a bit of a music nerd, a lot of the stuff I found fascinating were all the kind of experiments they did in a studio, putting Simon and Garfunkel actually in an echo chamber, which they never put singers in there. You put, it's complicated, but you put in, you record through that. But nobody had ever put singers in there before. Yeah. Nobody had ever tried this. Nobody had ever tried that. And Roy Halley loves to experiment as much as Paul Simon. And I think, you know, as critical as Art Garfunkel was early on, I think having this person who was like, absolutely, let's just try it was, and I don't think they had to talk about it. And exactly. that's, that sounds silly. Let's not, let's not talk about it. But it was just this knowing that somebody else is kind of willing to throw themselves at this, uh, I think was critical for him. And I don't think his career would have been nearly the same without, without Roy Halley. There's always, you know, mm -hmm. people in the record business and every business that will kind of inhibit you. You just got to find that one person. And he did. I mean, I have two, so I count, count myself very lucky, but uh, I think for Paul, that was that was critical. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And what you said in the beginning where you both discussed it and you didn't have to talk about it. You just knew like, oh, I could picture what that's like. I mm -hmm. visited my dad yesterday and he's in the hospital and he's going through like, you know, something really challenging. And he was just sort of doing what people sometimes do in those moments, reminiscing about his like childhood. And he was talking about growing up in Brooklyn and how his dad didn't get how special baseball was to him as a kid. And he was talking about seeing Mickey Mantle play. And his dad said, I don't get it. It's just a guy throwing a ball. And he goes, no, it's not a guy throwing a ball because it's him. And we were talking yesterday about people who there's just such a weight. There's something about what they do that it's, it's coming from the depth of their being that it's not just a guy throwing a ball. And I think Paul Simon is like that. And that's why you didn't really have to talk about it. You could just picture because there's something in the fabric of his essence when he performs, it's just an extension of the most honest, true expression of who he is. And he's just, there's a, there's a level of goodness and mastery in his work. And that's why you just go, Oh, I know what that's like. Right. It's like, you know, Larry King sitting down with someone or Barbara Walters sitting down with someone is not just, oh, it's a person talking to another person. It's like, well, it's not, you know, there's something going on that's inherently different. Um, and I get that about Paul Simon. I was going to say, he, he was also the experimenter with us because I don't know if anyone's ever done a project. No. And I, I met with him. We had lunch in one day, two years ago. And I had said very vaguely to him on the phone what we were interested in doing. I just sat down with him and I said, well, we just want to come and talk to you and record it and do something interesting with it. And he didn't really require any additional explanation. Um, He's like, okay. He was like, yeah, well, I'll try that. Just, you know. Just casual. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he'd done 
people have written biographies about him, but that's a very specific thing where you sit and you are interviewed and then the interviewer goes off. Right. And I was thinking, well, I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about a partnership where, you know, we make this together and you're going to play and we're going to ask you questions and I'm going to, Bruce and I are going to come up with theories about you and it, we'll throw it all together somehow and see if it works. And he, he, he was, there wasn't even any hesitation. He was like, and then after we were done, he drove me home. You know, I live downtown, he lives uptown. So it's like, that kind of speaks to the generosity of his, of mm-hmm. the way he approached this whole project. Yeah. And also I think his respect for the work that you both do, where he was just like, yeah, that would be fun to spend that mm-hmm. time with the two of you. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Well, that, I, well, I would have asked him to pick me up at the airport. That's uh, <laughs> right. I knew he was so obliging. <laughs> no. And he, he was, um, I mean, we, right. we spent, we spent the first day listening to the songs that really influenced him, all these amazing old doo-wop songs. And he loved these very particular things about them. Like he's not a, oh, I just love old rock and roll, so I'm going to do an old rock and roll record. He's like, you know, listen listen here, listen how the voices work here, listen to the rhythm under this, listen to this guitar solo. This guy must have been a jazz player. I think it may have been Mickey Baker. He's, he's very, very particular about the things that he hears and what he wants to do with them. He's not remotely sentimental. He doesn't say, I'll do a rockabilly album because that's what, you know, a lot of people do. He says, no, I, I want to capture this particular facet of this performance and then put it in something completely different. So he's interesting that way. Um, he's not sentimental. But he was, he was, you know, we'd go up when we saw him in Connecticut, he'd just come in, say hi, make a giant, giant pot of coffee. And we'd just sit there <laughs> and drink coffee with Paul Simon and talk. It was, it was very relaxed. It's awesome. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And it is so unusual the way that you guys created this. And I I hope that you'll do more because it's so special. I love what you're both saying. Before we keep going, we're going to thank our sponsors. Amazon Music is a streaming platform for both music and podcasts with over 10 million free podcast episodes to listen to, including our show. You can also listen to the hilarious podcast Smartless one week before everyone else and ad-free on Amazon Music. I love the banter between Will Arnett and Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes, and they've had some really great conversations with guests like Jimmy Fallon and Sandra Bullock. Or if you're a true crime fan, you can check out Dr. Death Miracle Man, which is available two weeks early on Amazon Music. There's also plenty of music to choose from. They have over 75 million songs, thousands of music stations, and top playlists. Some of my go-to artists are Ben Rector, Megan Trainer. My list can go on and on. I love that I can listen to their songs no matter where I am. Even if I'm busy driving, I can listen hands-free with Alexa, which is really convenient. Plus, with Amazon Music Unlimited, I can listen to any song anywhere offline with unlimited skips. For a limited time, new customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days, no credit card required. Just go to amazon.com slash dreamjob30. That's amazon.com slash dreamjob30 to try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days. Renews automatically, cancel anytime, terms apply. If you love a good whodunit, then you're going to love June's Journey. Your play is June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a series of mysteries full of twists and turns around every corner. Put your powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills, and relish the thrill of solving the case. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. You'll search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid scenes. And with new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. This game is so much fun. I like to play it when I'm waiting to pick up my kids instead of mindlessly scrolling on social media. This is a good way to spend a few minutes to give my brain a good problem-solving challenge. I also love that it takes place in the roaring 20s, so it's like a little escape into a whole other dimension. Ready to awaken your inner detective? Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. 
Malcolm, I think our audience would want to know, does he fit your description of an outlier? And if so, can you kind of recap a little bit of a couple of those pieces and, and how he fits that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does. If you remember from that book, one of the arguments about outliers was that they were people who were fortunate in where they were from. So I spent a lot of time talking about what does it mean to be born at a certain time in a certain place? Remember, there was a chapter on why are so many of the successful lawyers in New York Jewish? In more than that, born in the mid-30s. So was there something about being born in 1935 and being Jewish that helped you become a very successful lawyer? And the answer is there is. And I, that chapter walks through that question. And with Paul, there's a one of the chapters of Miracle and Wonder is uh, called The Gift of Queens. Mm. And it's all about well, what does it mean to be to grow up in Queens in the 1950s if you're interested in music? And it means something, the argument of that chapter is that it means something very specific that you're being exposed to this incredible range of musical traditions all around you. There's doo-wop, there's Latin music, there's the music of his own culture, there's you know, the beginnings of rock and roll, there's R&B, there's everything happening, but not just on the radio, it's happening in your neighborhood. And there's also this kind of the gift of Queens, though, which I think is something that a gift he got from that time and place was this idea that all of the world's cultural offerings, offerings were yours to sample. You weren't trespassing or stealing or appropriating when you when you explored someone else's cultural tradition, to be a kid in Queens in the 50s is like, no, 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 the world's your oyster. Like the kids sitting next to you in schools from Puerto Rico and, you know, your parents are Eastern European Jewish immigrants and you guys got to share those traditions with each other. They're, you know, you're, you're side by side in the classroom. Like, first of all, that idea doesn't exist in the same way today. And there isn't that same kind of cultural mixing today. He's a different and I think probably lesser singer, if if he's not from Queens in the 50s. That was the argument of that chapter. So I do think he benefits enormously. You know, the argument of outliers is exceptional performance is natural ability plus some set of advantages of environmental, cultural, situational advantages. And he's that in spades. Mm, I which love is, that. Which is interesting because at a certain point in his career, it was a disadvantage. When Simon and Garfunkel started playing in Greenwich Village and started writing folk songs, they weren't liked uh, because there's the sort of uh, big characters there were like, you know, Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk and uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who, who, by the way, was uh, rambled all the way from Brooklyn. But they they were trying to put themselves in this in this sort of tradition of American folk music. Woody Guthrie was their hero. Bob Dylan, in fact, told this whole story about how he'd ridden the rails and cooked at a lumber camp and done all this stuff. Yesterday, I interviewed Judy Collins, who was a singer back then. Oh, my gosh. Still a great singer. And, and I laugh because she's from Denver and she actually did like she worked in national parks. She was a ranger. Right. She, she cooked at this camp one year. And I said, you actually led the life that Bob Dylan <sighs> pretended he led. But Simon and Garfunkel being from Queens, Queens was not exotic. They had had a hit when they were kids called Hey Schoolgirl, when they were called Tom and Jerry. This is Simon and Garfunkel. And this, for the people in, 
in the village. This was just awful. Uh, Dave Van Ronk said in his biography that you could get a reliable laugh at a West Village coffee shop just by strumming your guitar and saying, hello, darkness, my old friend, because this was like, oh. Uh, and their first album was a failure until it was re-released. Uh, they re-released the single a year later. So their first album failed. So, and, you know, I think Malcolm makes the persuasive case that that, that is a, that's a difficult thing to go through, but it is kind of freeing in a way. Mm. Um, he didn't have to pretend to be another person um, in a way that I think a lot of those wow. people did. That's so... Not the women, interestingly. Not Baez, yeah. not Joni Mitchell, not uh, Judy Collins, who, as I said, actually did live that life. Um, but a wow. lot of, with a lot of the men, it, it was like, you know, ugh, to be a like a, wow. a child star from Queens. Ugh. So wow. I think he showed them. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah, that's... It's almost hard to hear it because it, it sounds like the words you're saying are just so foreign to our experience. And uh, Lisa Henson, who's Jim Henson's daughter, is a good friend of mine. And she says similarly about her father that people just assume that he had this this success and there wasn't a, a prequel to that success. And And we were talking about that because she has kids who are now in their teens and they kind of look at that. And I think that that's, you know, this is a very obvious point we're making, but it's especially with social media, you just see sort of this highlight reel and you don't really get what was really happening. And I, I can't believe what you just said, especially about, you know, strumming a few bars of Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. Like that's one of the greatest songs of all time. And in this moment for, you know, for them, that wasn't really the case. So Malcolm, to go back to your work, what was it that was really the tipping point for them? You know, as Bruce was saying, first album, is a commercial failure. And then a producer takes Sound of Silence and puts in Bruce, do you remember? Puts in... It was Tom Wilson, who should be better known. He was African-American from Harvard who produced a lot of early Dylan and a lot of the great early folk music. And people don't know about him, they should. Um, he just added drums and and uh, he gave it a beat. Mm. Uh, I think a year later with Roy Halley, who worked on it, and it became a huge... Hit. So it was just sort of a uh, happenstance, but they just thought about it in a different way. And Paul Simon was living in England at that point and suddenly heard that, you know, he he had a hit. It was like finding out you had a baby when you're overseas, I suppose. But uh, and then they got back together and kept working. In the book, there's a very funny thing where he talks about, you know, in those days, you found out how well you're song was doing by checking the the trade press would have the whatever the billboard 100 or whatever the list of and songs that were moving up quickly had a bullet you know and you would get this every week and you'd look at and he keeps seeing the i guess it, i think it was the billboard 100 or, where, or some equivalent yeah, to it yeah it would have been yeah. and he he's outside the top 100 and then the next week he's a little higher and the next week he's a little higher and he's each time and he's so kind of like uh superstitious about it that he he starts from the bottom and looks up. He can't, you know, trying to, to see, well, how high did I get this week? How high did I get this week? And then finally, you know, he goes, I don't know, but, but did it reach number one, Bruce? I, can't remember. I don't know if it reached number one, but I, I know that, you know, here. he would put his hand over the top of the chart. And of course, so when it kept rising, he just assumed it had fallen off. So he was just because he couldn't kind of bear it. And then That's like, right. what? I've got a top 10 hit. Um, wow. 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 Yeah. So, so in terms of, their, you know, greatest sort of crescendo 
does the graduate play a huge role in that or not as much? The graduate is interesting because, for a lot of reasons, but he actually had a song called Mrs. Roosevelt he was working on, and it became Mrs. Robinson perfectly. And you sort of realize the it takes longer for the culture to sort of catch up than you think. It's really the first pop song to win the Grammy for for best song. Wow. Before that, it was really like Sinatra and, and you know, American songbook stuff. I think maybe Fifth Dimension won for something. But yeah, it's kind of a breakthrough. Like it's a sort of counterculture, uh, first counterculture song to win best song. So yeah, I think it was, yeah, I think it was a big deal. But it, it's, you know, it's the start of Kathy. It's the start of this really interesting thing that one of the things that Paul does over the course of his career is he allies himself. He's constantly allying himself with other cultural movements. So think of, so there he teams up with one of the great filmmakers of the day and contributes this iconic song that almost defines the movie. And the movie is an enormous hit. So he's associated with Mike Nichols. He's aligning himself with one of the greatest figures in Hollywood. Later, of course, he will become very, very closely associated with Saturday Night Live because he's really good friends with Lorne Michaels. And he becomes a fixture on Saturday Night Live during the golden years of that show. And again, he allies himself with an an extraordinarily powerful cultural movement. And then what is Grayson? Grayson's a version of that. You know, he's allying himself with this sort of world music um, movement, which becomes incredibly, I mean, largely because of Grayson, becomes an incredibly important. So it's this, he has this kind of gift this intuition for understanding the kinds of creative partnerships that will put him in the conversation, the kind of cultural conversation. Mm. I think that sounds, and I know you don't mean it this way, Malcolm, but, you know, people knew Mike Nichols in New York and they knew him from Virginia Woolf, which is the film he'd made. But he, you know, nobody knew The Graduate was going to be a big thing. Not that many people knew about Mike Nichols. Saturday Night Live, was he was on in the first season, one of the first episodes. So it was still a bit of a mystery then. And Graceland, you know, it's not... Looking back now, people say, well, African music was becoming so big. It wasn't at that point. And his previous album, uh, Hearts and Bones, had been a commercial failure. I mean, he went to do Graceland because he thought, well, nobody's going to care what I do. I might as well do something interesting. Mm. Um, So it's not as though he's like... He's not catching the way... I mean, he is catching the wave in a sense... But not, not in a cynical. He's, identi- he's identifying the wave. Yes, yes, he is absolutely. That's that's the yeah. That's the thing. He's not he's not aligning himself with movements that have that are popular. That's no, no. He's he's the right. one who understands that something interesting is going on with Saturday Night Live, and something interesting is going on with Mike Nichols, and something interesting is going on in Africa. He's he's on the early side of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, that's a beautiful way to see that. What a gift to be able to intuit that. I have a few more things to ask you, but let's just take a quick ad break. Thanks to Territory Foods for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. Territory is a chef-driven marketplace of meals that are sustainably sourced and super nutritional. In fact, their meals only use healthy fats, clean proteins, and lots of sustainably harvested seasonal produce. And the entire menu is free of gluten, inflammatory oils, dairy, and refined sugar. You can choose from 10 plans, including the Mediterranean diet, paleo, vegan, Whole30, and keto-friendly, or just choose 
what looks good to you. Territory's meals are available in most major cities in the U.S., and their locally driven menus feature as many as 90 items each week. Meals are delivered twice a week to ensure that they're always fresh, and you can order as many as 12 meals for every delivery day. Their risk-free subscription makes it easy to pause or cancel your meals at any time. I love their grilled salmon and the tropical bowl with coconut rice and lentils. It was really yummy and totally filled me up without giving me that really heavy feeling. Also, it takes less than two minutes to prepare, so it's the perfect quick lunch for me on days when I have back-to-back podcasts. And I like that their menu options change with the season, so there's always something new to try. To save $75 across your first three orders plus free shipping, go to TerritoryFoods.com and use the promo code DREAMJOB. That's $75 you can save across your first three orders along with free shipping by going to TerritoryFoods.com with the promo code DREAMJOB. I'm curious because, um, you know, Bruce, I mean, I don't know what it's like to win a Pulitzer Prize, but it's got to feel like a big validation in your life. Well, neither do I officially because editors' names don't go on Pulitzer Prizes. Okay, so, fine. Um, I've had I've had journalists win Pulitzer Prizes. All right, we'll just say it's yeah. it's it's near you. It's it's associated yeah, with it's you. N- it's near me. Um, and Malcolm has had so many, you know, smash success over and over. You know, incredible best-selling books. It's just kind of people expect it at this point. And Paul Simon, similarly. So I guess the question is, at some point for each of you and for for him, do you feel like there's a pressure of, you know, this has to perform at that level? Or is there just a joy for each of you in like, I want to do this work regardless, and I won't be crushed. I mean, really being honest, if this thing is not as successful as the last because it's probably a very beautiful and yet challenging thing when there is that expectation at such a high level. One thing that I've always been struck by is new things take a long time to get accepted. You know, even the telephone, I was using the example of the telephone. Telephones invented <laughs> in the 70s. Most Americans don't have a telephone until the 1920s. It takes 50 years for people to understand that, oh, this is actually useful thing to have in your home. Um, That's a dumb example, but... um, No, it's a great example. That is a great example. Yep. Okay. But, uh, you know, I and I don't think any of us at Pushkin... I mean, we would love if this was a huge commercial success, but it wasn't about that. It was about trying to explore what audio can do and how can we work with artists, with creative people, and do something unusual and special and groundbreaking and with the understanding that this will lead somewhere it's really about the next one we do and this is a calling card you know we've we've already gotten calls from other artists who have listened to this and said oh that's so cool we would like to do something similar that's the way i think this kind of process works is you're setting the table for others to come and and dine with you i love that that's really exciting and do you do you feel that he has a similar take or do you feel like it's been challenging for him when things didn't reach the certain level? Well, he still talks about Cape Man, you know, his Broadway play, which didn't do as expected. It's still, am I right, Bruce? That was some of, when he talked about Cape Man, that was some of the most emotionally kind of fraught Mm -hmm. uh, moments in our whole, in all our interviews. Well, and I think this relates to what Malcolm's talking about with Pushkin and Paul Simon. You know, Paul Simon goes through, he doesn't sit down to write a certain kind of record, but he goes through a process of getting interested in sounds and collecting lyrics. And 
I think Cape Man hurts him in a way because putting on a Broadway show is so large and so collaborative. It took him out of how he does things. It took him away from what he's good at. Um, the music in that, by the way, is beautiful. Um, but he depended on other people in a way he doesn't depend on them for other projects. And I, you know, when I think about, well, what will the next thing be? I always think the, and you know, I'm, I don't work at Pushkin, but if someone phoned me and said, gee, I loved what you did with Paul Simon, I'd like to do the same thing. I think the first conversation should be, okay, but understand it's a process of figuring out what would work for you. We're not going to do a Paul Simon for you, whoever you are. Um, thanks, Eric Clapton, or whoever it would be. It's you sit down and you figure out what would work for that person. And may end up being very, very different. That's one thing I sort of learned from Paul Simon, which is you kind of go through that that process. And the process, you end up with something very, very different. Um, yeah. So I don't think suddenly there's going to be like this meat grinder turning out audiobooks about, you know, musicians. Uh, weirdly, one of the most fascinating interviews I've done, and you may find this ridiculous, on Broken Record was Huey Lewis. I love Huey, Huey Lewis. Lewis has one of the most fascinating lives you can imagine. He just opens his mouth and he's super interesting. Mm. I don't think I'd want to do a whole audiobook with with Huey Lewis in the All same. Right. <laughs> um, it was he was an unbelievable interview, uh, and I encourage you to listen to it because he's it's fabulous. But so for everybody, it, it should be a different thing, and that's trying to come up with something new. And of course, the mountain mm -hmm. does this really better than anybody I, I can imagine. It is that process, and that's how you, you produce something new. As I said, I think Kate Man, because it took him out of of what he felt comfortable doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but, you know, good for him. He, like, created fabulous music, and so, like, a snotty critic at the New York Times didn't like it. Sadly, that's enough to kind of kill a Broadway show if the New York right. Times doesn't like it. But he did it. Music's great. He told a story that nobody else had told. He told a story very much from his childhood the Cape Man and, and about the Puerto Rican community. Um, it wasn't a feel-good story. So, uh, you know, I think he should be incredibly proud. Speaking of him being incredibly proud, what what did you learn for him was the happiest, the most fulfilling chapter for him? Uh, I don't know. Boots, am I wrong? I don't know if he thinks that way. I got the sense that, like, it's all about the next thing. I think you would have said Cape Man was a low point, but at the same time, he understands exactly what you just said about Cape Man, that it's actually kind of cool. He tried something, he took the risk and created something really unusual, probably just ahead of its time in some ways. And I think he's allergic to the idea, particularly someone like that who's in a creative field, if you, if you do rank your moments, then you become very, very conscious of things like creative decline. If you say... I'm going to judge myself by my music sales. Well, what's his best-selling album? I mean, what... I Graceland or Bridge, probably. Bridge or Graceland. But like, you know, Graceland's 1986. It's now 2021. He still wants to make music. If you think that way, then you're in this position where you think that the last 40 years have been declined, right? I think he's allergic to that idea. I think he thinks, so long as I'm engaged in what I'm doing and I'm enjoying myself, then... Right now is the best time. Um, yeah. He, he said, you know, for a time, for in his case, for a long time, what the culture was interested in and what he was interested in were very close. They were intertwined. That's not the case now. 
you know, we make a case for his later albums, which have, I think, just some very different. If you're expecting Bridge Over Troubled Water, you won't get it. But there's some songs on there I just adore that I find incredibly resonant. David Byrne says that So Beautiful or So What is his best album. Uh, I think Elvis Costello said the same thing. So that's an album from 2013 or something. 2013, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think Malcolm's absolutely right. You, You get trapped in that version of success. You know, it reminds me of two things. One, we did a chapter about his singing. And, you know, with Simon and Garfunkel, he would, they would always decide once he'd written the song, who's going to take the lead. But except for Bridge, the song Bridge Over Troubled Water, which he gave to Artie because he wrote it very high and he wrote it for a solo voice. And of course, it's a a stunning, stunning record. But he didn't sing it. But of course, once he's a solo artist, everybody's like, they want to hear his biggest hit. And it took him until (laughs) 2017 until he came up with a version very different that he felt that song was his own. Oh, my God. So that's, you know, he always felt uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if I'd written Bridge Over Troubled Water, I'd be singing it in the shower. Yeah, um, No matter how bad my voice was, I that would be the first thing I would literally tell everybody I met. But for him, it was, it was you know, so I think even something that was one of his greatest triumphs for him still becomes a process of figuring out in a in a new way. Yeah. All right. So last question about... Paul Simon, then we're going to wrap up is in terms of his life as a, as a person, as a human, as a friend, as a husband, I mean, being in the public for so many decades is, it's a lot on a person. How do you think he's dealt with that? How do you think that that's affected him? One of the things we did in this book was we interviewed, um, we did these cameos where we interviewed other musicians about Paul Simon. And one of the people we interviewed was Sting, who knows Paul very well. And Sting, I interviewed Sting. And Sting is like in a French chateau and there's what looks like a Monet over his shoulder. And he's the best looking guy you've ever met in your entire life. And he's absolutely, the cameo is fantastic because he's so perfectly articulate and brilliant and funny. And he's a rock star. And I was actually, I am rarely intimidated by people totally intimidated by Sting. I was like, oh my God, this guy is, he has more charisma in his little finger than most of us do. And that's one response to fame and celebrity or one version of it. Paul's the opposite. He's very unassuming. He's the kind of, if Sting's on one end of the continuum, Paul's on the other end. When we were in Hawaii, Paul would drive himself an hour into the hills to our recording studio. Sting hasn't driven himself in 30 years. You know, Paul, like, when I met him for the first time, we were just sitting in some restaurant, some mediocre Italian restaurant in Times Square, and he's, like, sitting in the back with a baseball cap. You know, it's like his response to his celebrity has been to go, to insist on his on his kind of ordinariness. You know, he, he doesn't play the rock star card, which I think is kind of fantastic. Oh, I think it's one of the coolest things you've shared today. That's yeah. really awesome. I'd say two things about that. First, I feel a little embarrassed sharing because it's not part of the project, but I thought it was so sweet, which is uh, one day we did, when we were in Hawaii, we did drive up together. It was up in this mountain where we, in this little studio that was a former, like a fruit seller, 
It's very cool. Oh my god! Anyway, so cute. but we went we went to his house there, and and we met his wife uh, Edie Edie Brickell, who's famous in her own right. And she'd re- I chatted to her because she had worked with a musician I knew in Toronto, and she was totally lovely. And she's working on this new project. Anyway, so we get in the car, we're driving, and he goes, Ah, damn, damn! It was it was February fourteenth. He goes, We got to turn around. I'm like, okay, did you forget something? Whatever. Turn around, go back. It's like he remembered it's Valentine's Day because I got to kiss my wife goodbye on Valentine's Day. Yeah, it was very sweet. No, he'd already, he already bought her stuff. And then I think later we took him out and he bought more chocolates or something. Um, that is so that was a cute. a very sweet moment. And the other thing I took away, and this isn't just about him. I think it's the way we think about artists. He said something to me once. I think we were talking about the boxer. Oh, and I, and I was I was wondering about how personal it was. He said, well, I didn't know I was feeling that way at the time, but clearly I was. And it made me think how we think about art, particularly about music. You know, the Adele model is, oh, my God, Adele's had a divorce. What are the divorce songs going to be? And that's one way people, tend, you know, somebody's happy, somebody's doing right. a makeup album, somebody's strung out. This is what they produce. Um, I think that's the wrong model. And I think Paul Simon shows that he He's sort of grappling with all kinds of things, mostly technical things. The music produces the emotion, not the other way around. Paul Simon feeling lonely or sad doesn't produce the boxer. There's part of that in there. But even he understands himself through his own work. He didn't know he was feeling he was that, well, he wasn't a poor boy at that point. But that's not really the important part of the song is being lonely and feeling alone in a in a city. And... He understood that about himself by writing the song, not the other way around. And that to me, I don't know why I found that so profound. It just kind of changed how I think about music now. I don't think about what was the person feeling when they did that. You think of what is the feeling that emerges. And of course, what's beautiful about that is if musician does it well, and he's done it better than just about anybody, we can all share in that emotion. But that's how he understands himself too. And that, to me, it just changed how I think about music and how I interview people now. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, But it didn't occur to me until I spent time with him. That makes so much sense because obviously we're all so much more multidimensional than people sort of paint things with these brushes in this moment. This is what it is. And so recently, of course, the great Stephen Sondheim just passed and people were posting their favorite lyrics and they just slay you like just reading these lyrics like one at a time you're just like oh my god right isn't it nice to know a lot and a little bit not like any line basically no one is alone right children will listen they're so good so for each of you doesn't have to be your favorite lyric but what is one of the lyrics that just like hits you like one of his lyrics just one we have a chapter devoted to this to the line from the song Tenderness, which I tried to argue, try to convince Paul was his quintessential song. It was um, just try some tenderness beneath your honesty. Mm. My mind is so much of his music is about that idea. It's a really beautiful one. For me, Paul Simon, it's on an album he's not even that fond of. I think he did it in 2011, 2012 with Brian Eno. And we, we talk about it a bit. It's a song that he talks about how he... He has less patience. And so the, his later songs have many more themes. They're not simple pop songs. He really crammed stuff in. 
but the line that and it's repeated it's it's the chorus which is once there was an ocean now there's a mountain range something unstoppable was set into motion uh nothing is different but everything has changed i can't even tell you why that gets me but it just it just even just saying it i was kind of getting emotional you guys there's so much goodness here the two of you and then him it's quite extraordinary so tell everybody if they haven't already gotten their ears on it where they can find it uh it's called miracle and wonder and you can find it on audible or you can download it directly from pushkin it's miracleaudiobook.com um or just go to the uh, the pushkin.fm website and you can find it Amazing. Incredible. And uh, just real fast, Bruce, why don't you tell us where they can find Broken Record also? Um, on iTunes or brokenrecordpodcast.com. You can Amazing. find all the interviews there. I guess we'll have to put up Judy Collins pretty soon. <laughs> um, you can go back and listen to like a, a lot of the great episodes that Rick has done or Rick and Malcolm doing Springsteen, which was a great, great conversation. Yeah. And I seem to specialize in people who are either 82 or 22. So you can hear a lot <laughs> of older artists who's like, like Judy Collins, who can just tell stories like she's just such a firecracker. She's fabulous. Uh, and you can hear a lot of great new artists like awesome. uh, Amethyst Kia, a lot of, a lot of young women right now writing amazing songs particularly in country music, which is all dominated by like bro country. It's this complete mismatch. Like the, the industry is actually missing where all the talented people are. Uh, but you can find them on Broken Record. That's awesome. Well, we had Brandy Carlisle on the show a couple months ago oh. and she was great. And everybody here loved that. So you should go subscribe. And Malcolm, Revisionist History is on a break. When's the next thing we can look forward to? Probably in June. Awesome. We'll, we'll return. Thank you for being so delightful and taking your very, very important time when you could be making the next incredible thing and coming and hanging out with us. Thank that was you. awesome. We had a blast. I love chatting with Malcolm and Bruce. So here are the takeaways. Number one, there's a gift in the resistance. Use that as the driver to keep going, reinvent and try different things. Number two, connecting with an audience on a consistent basis requires taking risks. Keep trying until you find something that connects. Number three, team up with people who want to experiment as much as you do. Number four, all of the world's cultural offerings are yours to sample. The world is your oyster. Number five, there's a freedom in failure and experimentation. Number six, follow what interests you. Number seven, don't rank your moments. As long as you're engaged with what you're doing and enjoying it, then right now is the best time. And number eight, there's beauty in the ordinary. All right. Well, now I want to shine a light on two of our awesome alumni sisters, Sari and Lauren, who have a podcast called Creative Cravings. So one of them wrote in and she said, I've been noticing the power of sharing small wins and it keeps me going. So I'll kick off the good news. Last holiday season, we hosted a Creative Cravings podcast conversation with inspiring world-renowned dancing violinist, Lindsay Sterling. We wrote her name down on a list of dream guests during Kathy's podcast program back in summer of 2018. Her pick-me-up words of wisdom have stuck with us to this day, and we have loved the response from her fans and our listeners. Our show is not in season right now, but we have started a new chapter in order to produce season three. We're only a two-person team, us. We took a step back to figure out what self-care would look and feel like to us, and we are proud to share the rewards-based crowdfunding campaign with you. 
We launched it on Women's Entrepreneurship Day and it will remain open through December 21st. The recipe for making this happen involves several ingredients, listening to other entrepreneurs' stories for a big dose of inspiration. You bet don't keep your day job as one of them. Overcoming some key limiting beliefs and having faith that working hard to share a variety of creative gifts is valued in this world. We're proud of our path, our progress, and we're so thankful for your support. Happy belated Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. Oh my goodness, Sari and Lauren, I am so proud of you two. You are both so adorable and loving and kind and special. It really feels like just yesterday when I was talking to you in the podcast program, you've got on to lead such an incredible journey in the last few years. I love that you've been able to meet some of your heroes through the podcast and making that decision to take care of yourselves is so huge. I'm sending you both a big hug and I can't wait to hear what's coming next for you. Let's all give Lauren and Sari some love. If you want to meet two very lovable girls, go check it out. Their podcast is called Creative Cravings and you can find a link to their crowdfunding campaign in their Instagram bio at creative.cravings. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I know there's a bajillion things on your plate and the holidays are right around the corner. So I hope that you know that I don't take your support and your presence here for granted. It is just the biggest thing you have is your time. And so it means so much that you're spending it with me. We have so many more great conversations coming up. So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, wherever you listen. And do you know somebody who's a fan of Malcolm Gladwell or Bruce Headlam or Paul Simon? If you know someone who'd be inspired by this conversation, please share the episode, text them the link, email them the link, but take a second and do it before you forget because I really think that so many people are going to walk away and say, gosh, that was such a good use of my time. I'm so glad I listened because there was such good stuff in this episode. Also, don't forget I'm doing a giveaway. If you go to my Instagram at kathy.heller, you're going to see I'm giving away an amazing pair of sneakers from Zendig and Voltaire. What you have to do to enter the giveaway is so simple. It's like reposting one of my posts. You can find it if you go to my Instagram at kathy.heller. You'll see it. I posted it yesterday. Also, I'm doing a retreat in South Florida in February. It's three days and it's going to be so incredible to have a group of extraordinary women together in person. You can go to kathyheller.com slash ready if you want to join us. You can apply there. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have a gorgeous weekend and I'll talk to you Monday.
Light it up.